Models suggest we could hit the peak in eight days, which means these next two weeks will be the deadliest. But that burden is not being borne equally, as COVID-19 is killing Black Americans at far higher rates. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Last season of America Dissected, we recorded from a beautiful wood-paneled studio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Shout out to Solid Sound. This season, I'm in a closet in my in-law's basement. Sarah, my wife, who you'll hear from in just a few minutes, is outside taking care of her patients by telehealth. Upstairs, Emily, my two-year-old daughter, is playing. I'm playing block, blocks. You're playing blocks to prevent the coronavirus? Yeah. We moved here when this all started because it was the only way both of us could keep working after Emily's daycare closed. We've been here for almost a month, and though I'm grateful to be surrounded by family and no one has yet gotten sick, it's challenging. We're socially distancing the best we can. What are you going to do if the coronavirus comes? I'll stay away the coronavirus. Okay, that's a good job. You're going to stay away from the coronavirus, right? Stay away from the coronavirus. My father-in-law, a doctor, is at the hospital as we speak, and we're all bracing for what might happen if he were to be exposed. Sarah is caring for her patients virtually, but if things get worse, she may be called up to serve at an ICU. And though I'm doing my best to keep folks informed and educated and lending advice to public officials who are leading responses, there's not a day that goes by that I don't wish I were leading a response somewhere right now as well. I chose not to do a residency after medical school, so I don't practice medicine day to day. But soon, I may just find myself on the front doing what I can to help. This moment has likely affected you in some profound ways as well. The way you listen has probably changed a lot. Rather than listening to this from your morning commute or at the gym while you're making those gains, you're at home for the, I don't even know how many days in a row. And while we've all ultimately discovered the glory of stretch pants and may never go back to the tyranny of a belt again, this is really hard. Last episode, I asked a few of you to share more about what COVID-19 has meant for your life. Here's what I heard. My name is Amber. I live in Richmond, Indiana. Uh, My name is Wayne. I am from South Africa, but I currently live in Dubai. Hi, my name is Em, and I live in Los Angeles in a one-bedroom apartment with my husband and my one-year-old daughter. I am the human resource manager of a plastics factory, and we are considered to be essential at the moment, making face shields for the local doctors and nurses here at our our hospital. The UAE is on lockdown. Uh, In essence, no flights in or out. Every night, 8 p.m., they shut down the streets, uh, all the roads until 6 a.m., and they do a massive citywide and actually countrywide disinfection. I have been furloughed from both of my jobs indefinitely, and I honestly don't think that either of them are gonna come back anytime this year, which is absolutely terrifying. We were making ends meet just barely um, for the past six months, and now with only the prospect of unemployment for both of us, we just know there's absolutely no way we're going to be able to pay our bills. So I've been applying to jobs at Target, CVS, Walgreens, and I'm being rejected from everything. It is extremely stressful to have the burden to bear of making sure you don't contaminate the household that we live. Um, I've developed a lot of um, rituals that are now just becoming second nature. Um, My habits and everything have changed and the way I move around is completely different. It seems like uh, Dubai and the UAE government are taking the route of the South Koreans in terms of their response to it. 
and um, it's looking relatively positive. The kids, for the most part, are in good spirits. I mean, of course, they you know get to sleep in and you know hang out and play outside. But my husband, who already um, has to deal and suffer with um, anxiety and depression, is having a, a terribly rough time with this. Being home isn't this peaceful. Um, fun time to read books and watch Netflix and like bake sourdough bread for us. We've been fighting so much and it's just really toxic and it got so bad that I had to find somewhere else to live for a couple days. <laughs> it is really hard. I hope everybody's able to find outlets for, you know, getting themselves help or the things they need to be able to cope with this because it's, it's hard. Social distancing is extremely hard, but it's also tragically a privilege. First, Many people don't have homes to socially distance from. Others have been locked up together for years. And even for those who aren't homeless or incarcerated, too many in our society are forced to choose between social distancing to save lives or going out to work to save livelihoods. Those people are more likely to be poor and more likely to be black in America. And so those are the folks who are most likely to die of COVID-19. While people have warned or have been concerned about the impact. Now we're seeing where it's kind of playing out in some places. For example, Louisiana, they released some stats that showed that 70% of the people who died are African-Americans. And that's in the state where the population is 32% African-Americans. Some of the major cities that are, are hardest hit by it, New York, Louisiana, Detroit, are cities that have a significant Black population. Disease follows a particular social physics. It has a predilection for the poor and marginalized. And in America, Structural racism and the intended poverty that follows have left black Americans far more likely to suffer. And it's not just COVID. If you listen to season one, in episode eight, we talked about the striking inequities in infant mortality. We also talked throughout the season about inequities in lead poisoning, and even the way we talked about addiction when it was affecting mainly black people in the 80s and 90s, and mainly white people in the 2000s. Over 200 African Americans die every day who wouldn't die if they had the same health experience of whites. That COVID is now killing black Americans at higher rates shouldn't be surprising. But it will always be shameful. Fixing it will require us uprooting the inequities in education, employment, housing, health care, clean air and water. Things that we should have been far more focused on even before we faced a global pandemic. I can only hope that the shame of this will drive action to address these inequities behind the inequalities in health as we emerge from this. Beyond the death and disease that we can see that COVID is causing, there's an unbearable and unequal mental health burden too. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our episode discussing. For folks with underlying mental health challenges, this can be particularly hard. I caught up with the one person that I can have an in-person interview with, Dr. Sara Jukaku, a psychiatrist who also happens to be my wife. I wanted to find out what she's hearing. In her practice, she focuses on taking care of young people, many of whom have had their lives completely upended by this. All right, sorry, ready to do this interview? Sure. Thanks for inviting me to your snazzy office. It's uh, down the hall from mine. You know, it's a long walk. Uh, we have uh, great space here, but um, welcome to my closet turned uh, studio. Thank you. Well, um, so can you tell me what folks are experiencing right now? I mean, where do I start? Um, there's first the problem of access, right? You know, trying to figure out how to all of a sudden do all of mental health remotely, um, which actually, you know, mental health does lend itself better to 
telehealth compared to other fields, but when you're not used to doing that and when the patients aren't used to that, that's a struggle. And then most providers aren't taking new patients right now. So access is already um, difficult and is now even more limited. And then on top of that, like trying to do evaluations um, over the phone um, or um, with a video visit is sometimes um, more difficult. I know a lot of people receive their healthcare that way already, but for for people who kind of weren't expecting that, um, I think it's a loss for them. Sometimes their mental health providers, you know, one of the only people they really feel close to. And so that's been a change for some of my patients, I'd say. And then one of the hallmarks of this experience for a lot of people has been, you know, just really profound social isolation. Um, can you talk a little bit about what social isolation does uh, to folks with with underlying mental illness? Well, I mean, I think, um, for example, people who are severely depressed um, are already isolating themselves. And so, um, you know, this can exacerbate that. Um, no one's checking in on them. Um, and I think just the the loneliness factor, it, it affects, you know, you and I, um, maybe people who don't have mental illness, but it's compounded in, in people who do. Human contact is huge. Um, seeing people face to face is huge. Um, and, you know, you can imagine not even being able to um, be with your loved ones can be even worse for somebody who wonders whether or not life is worth living if they're a burden on other people. And there isn't that, you know, physical reminder for those people. And for folks who are who are struggling with um, with mental illness right now, uh, is there is there a resource that they can access? Um, you know, if they if they do feel uh, like their symptoms are getting overwhelming. Yes, there are always resources. We are adapting as we kind of figure out our new normal. Um, you know, we are offering therapy remotely. We are offering um, uh, psychiatric services remotely, and there are a lot of support groups online. I mean, the best advice I can really give people is to kind of quote unquote control the controllables. Um, and what that means is trying to set a schedule for yourself and not being too hard on yourself if you don't meet it, but having some regularity, trying to exercise in a way that you can in your own home um, or outside, even if you can't go to the gym, you know, trying to eat healthy when you can, um, setting up, you know, um, FaceTime hangouts or Zoom or whatever it is, um, making your home work environment better. I mean, like even just for us, cleaning up the basement and setting up a desk situation um, in the last week is like improved our work um, environment dramatically. And so I think doing the little things that you can and do have control over um, can make a huge difference. And then um, there's always the National Suicide Prevention Hotline for people who are, you know, struggling with really severe depression or concerns about, you know, whether or not life is worth living in this moment. And ERs are still open and running if you're in that um, extreme situation. And just for folks for whom uh, this conversation may be difficult, uh, that suicide prevention hotline that, that Sarah mentioned is 1-800-273-TALK. And, you know, whether that's for you or for a loved one, um, you know, make sure that uh, that anybody who's suffering in this moment um, and 
you know, for whom um, this may be necessary, just let them know. 1-800-273-TALK. After my discussion with Sarah, I thought about how all these patients add up. When we tally what the short, middle, and long-term consequences of COVID will be for our mental health, what will it mean? What can we do to reduce that burden and prepare for it? We'll talk to a longtime friend and mentor of mine, Professor Sandro Galea, an epidemiologist and dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, after the break. Joining us today is Knox Professor and Dean at the Boston University School of Public Health and a close personal friend and mentor of mine, uh, Dean Sandro Galea. Uh, Sandro, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us today. Thank you for having me, Abdul. So at the top of the show, uh, we talked to a psychiatrist whom you know well, uh, that's Sarah, my wife, um, and she was telling us a little bit about some of the challenges she's hearing from her patients. You're an expert when it comes to the epidemiology of mental illness following trauma. Can you speak to what is happening right now? It's sort of a complex trauma where people are both anxious about what's continuing to happen, but also uh, isolated from each other. How, how does that play into helping us to think about what the mental health consequences of uh, this COVID-19 pandemic are going to be? I would break it up into two pieces. I think there is a um, mental health consequences of COVID-19 itself, and then there are mental health consequences of the consequences of COVID-19. So let me talk about each of them. So let's start with COVID-19. COVID-19 is um, is a trauma. It is a trauma that uh, instills fear, that threatens our social fabric, threat, threatens our daily life. And so we're seeing a traumatic event that we're all experiencing together, which is the classic definition of a large-scale traumatic event. I've studied disasters and um, terrorist attacks and things like that, and those affect a lot of people, but I've never studied anything that has affected whole countries and the whole world, which is what essentially this is. So that has... That, that results in stressors that directly affect mental health. And to compound that, we are all dealing with this alone. So we have a uh, loneliness, which was something which already characterized a, pre- a predominance of Americans in American <clears throat> lives. And uh, on top of that, we also now have loss of supports that can help mitigate the effect of the trauma. So that's mental health in response to the trauma. Then we have the economic consequences. So as this is going on, because of the physical distancing, we have introduced an enormous new range of stressors, largely from the economic consequences. This is going to have an extraordinary long tail. And we know, we know that uh, economic stressors, unemployment, stressors around meeting mortgages, being able to send children to school, these have real mental health implications. So I think, unfortunately, we are going to have mental health implications of COVID-19 as a stressor itself and of the economic consequences of COVID-19. And both of these are going to conspire for us to see a wave of a surge of mental illness in coming months and years. Mm. But we know the consequences of these kinds of downturns that are, are going to come that you talk about are very different, right? Folks like you and I were privileged to be able to have resources that uh, can protect us from some of the shocks. And um, for a lot of folks, that's not the case. Can, can you speak to the inequality, the difference in how folks will weather it and what the consequences will be for their mental health? One of the favorite papers I've ever uh, had the privilege of writing is a paper that um, articulates social and economic interventions as medical interventions to make mental health better. 
And what the paper is about, it makes the case using data that when we invest as a society in um, ways to help people pay the rent, pay the mortgage, ways to make sure that people can get their kids to school, make sure that people can look after their elderly parents. We are alleviating stressors and that has an enormous positive consequence on our mental health. So the converse of that is exactly what's happening right now. We are creating those stressors and those stressors are going to be exactly in our way and they're going to be creating poor um, uh, poor mental health. Now, the, the, the distribution of that poor mental health is not even. It is affecting people who are already in the poorest half of society much more than people, as you said, like you and I, who are in the better off half of society. And why is that? Well, people in the poorest half are um, in jobs which are already poorly paid. They do not have sick leave. They do not have opportunities to um, um, take time off from work. They often still have to go to work and they're still facing stressors. And those are the people who are going to be most affected by all this. So we are creating a condition where we are going to further have gaps between health haves and health have nots. So in some ways, what I'm hearing, Sandro, is that so much of the consequence of COVID-19, the pandemic, the experience of the pandemic, the, the, the social distancing, so much of that consequence for mental health was really framed in the kind of society we were before this ever happened. Yeah, unfortunately, it's um, it's hard to say that we did not see this coming. I mean, in some respects, we never saw it coming because we did not see a global pandemic coming. So it, it would be disingenuous to say, you know, Abdul, you and I were talking and over the holiday in January of 2020, and we said, hey, pandemic's coming this year. That's not true. That's not right. But the conditions that are making this worse are things that you've written about, I've written about, many have written about for years and decades. So, so the, uh, the fact that we have a society which is characterized by health haves and health have nots, the fact that we have a society where 50% to 80% of the population are essentially health left behind, that they have not had an improvement in their life expectancy for the past 30 to 40 years. The fact that we have a society where we have not invested in the preventive conditions and building a health system, a system where we invest in housing and clean air, drinkable water, in fair economies and livable wages and gender equity, and these are the conditions that protect and generate health. That means that we were essentially sitting ducks for adverse consequences of a moment like this. So no, we did not know this pandemic was going to happen in 2020, but we did know that stressors like this pandemic were happening on a regular basis, that they would happen. And, and, and the fact that they've happened, this has happened now, it hasn't created these fundamental problems. It has revealed underlying problems that have characterized our health as a country for decades. Mm. And, you know, in some respects, we know what we need to do for the future, but what what do we need to do right now? Are there things that, that we as a society or people as individuals can do to protect themselves from the anxiety, the fear, um, the isolation uh, of this experience? Well, I think what we can all do to protect ourselves is a couple of things. Number one, I think it's important to talk about these things. So, and I'm grateful to you, Abdul, for having this conversation because I, I, I think uh, we are so far from recognizing mental health as an important uh, a set of conditions. We, we stigmatize it. We're, we're, we're worried about it. So I think being upfront about this and say, in a time like this, you're going to be anxious. In a time like this, you're going to be sad. And that sadness may become depression. That sadness may become debilitating where you actually cannot get on with your day-to-day -day life. That anxiety may overtake you, in which case you need help. So I think having the conversation, both to normalize transient feelings, but also to make it clear that it is 
perfectly understandable and perfectly expected that a large number of us will need help. And so to say it is okay to seek help, I think that's step one. Step two is if there's one finding in the science is that it's social supports that make all the difference. It is supporting ourselves through stressful moments. And it's now doubly hard to do so because we are supporting each other at a distance because we're all physically distant. So this is a call for anybody who is listening to build the best possible supports they can digitally, the best possible supports for each other and the best possible supports um, for people in their circle who they know are vulnerable. And that obviously manifests in different ways. Different people have different ways of interacting, but it would certainly really harm our collective mental health if our support for each other, our social support for each other were to bottom out right now. And coming out of this, we know that our mental health infrastructure, access to basic treatments and uh, and services to support people who are going through mental illness is already at a premium. Um, you know, from what you're describing, this this mass trauma is going to stress that even more. Uh, what do we need to do to, to be ready for the influx, the burden that's about to come of serious mental illness as a function of this? I think we need to first be talking about it. Number two, we need to be prepared for the surge, for the wave in uh, mental illness. So it really means making sure that health systems are prepared to provide the kind of stepped care that we need to deal with these issues. And by stepped care, I mean to provide the information for people for whom information is all they need and to provide the more intensive clinician-provided services for people who need it. And I, I think unless we do that, unless we're ready to do that, we are going to have enormous unmet mental health need. And, and, and that really will become the, a second epidemic that follows right after COVID. You know, there, there's a lot that I think we're going to be learning about the fissures uh, and the crevices in our society that we hadn't paid attention to after the pandemic. Um, what right now gives you hope for the future? I think what gives me hope is that we're having this conversation. You and I know each other go back a long, long time, so it's always fun to talk. But um, I actually mean the fact that this conversation and ones like it are happening. It is, um, I keep telling people around me that it's, it's hard to think of a silver lining when you're in the middle of a global pandemic. But if there is a silver lining, it is that we are beginning to recognize these, this set of issues, that we're beginning to talk about these underlying health conditions that have been there, have been present. Several people have been writing about, but we as a society have not paid attention to them. We will emerge stronger from this if we recognize that we cannot build a country on clay feet of health. We cannot build a country where you have 15-year gap in life expectancy between the people at the top and people at the bottom end of the socioeconomic ladder. We cannot build a country where the fundamental conditions that, make, that create health, things like housing, air, wages, basic sanitation, where we do not pay attention to those. We are, we are essentially making ourselves vulnerable. And I think over the years, we have allowed ourselves to think that that's okay. And, and you know, we, we've done that by saying, sometimes, look, it's regrettable. It's, it, it, it's, I'm sorry that there are some people who are not doing so well. But at the end of the day, it's their problem, and I don't think it's going to affect me. And, and, and I think this moment has shown us that this affects all of us. So if we emerge from this moment saying health is a shared good, health is something that we actually need to invest in for the collective benefit of all, we can build a healthier country as a result of this uh, terrible moment. I appreciate that perspective. And we ask this to, to, to everybody who visits. How are you playing out your, uh, your new quarantine life? Um, what does it look like for you? <laughs> well, right now we're talking from my, um, from my dining room, uh, my... Uh, three weeks of being home. Um, 
uh, myself, my spouse, and and the kids. And uh, you know, I have two teenagers, and uh, I worry about them. I worry about their um, their mental health the same way as we're having this conversation. Social life is really important for teenagers, and I want to uh, respect their needs. And I'm I'm very cognizant of making sure that uh, I look after their mental health. You know, very different needs than a four year old or a five year old. And uh, in some respects, as a parent. This is much easier because I don't have a, right now, I don't have a four-year-old jumping up on, uh, you know, on me as I'm trying to talk to you. Um, the, the, the challenge is different. The challenge is uh, making sure that uh, I can look after the, uh, what the kids need, need at this stage in their lives. And I'm very aware as this is going on of the range of needs and responsibilities that uh, people have. And uh, I, uh, I, I'm constantly aware of my privilege and uh, of... Uh, of, of what I have that protects me and constantly aware of the, of the broad range of challenges that uh, people from all walks of life are dealing with as they're trying to juggle the personal and the professional. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a tough time. It's a tough time. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that can be said um, enough. Well, we're wishing uh, you and uh, and your family uh, safety and good health in this moment, and hope that uh, that we get to cross paths in person uh, again soon. Hopefully, when this is uh, this is all over. Thank you, Abdul. It's always a pleasure talking. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. Infectious disease experts suggest that our national peak of COVID-19 will hit us in just a few weeks. This is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives, quite frankly. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment. Hospitals and healthcare workers are bracing themselves. Can we get them the resources they need in time? But even though our federal government is leaving them to fend for themselves, these people truly are heroes. I want to end today with an ounce of hope. A friend of mine is the CEO of a major hospital in New Jersey. His hospital, like so many others, is getting slammed right now. But he reached out to tell me about something that happened. His hospital emergency room was overwhelmed with patients suffering COVID-19. But the EMTs outside realized that there was no way that the ER staff could cope, so they rushed in and started helping. As he told it, they literally saved lives. Not all of us here are EMT staff outside in ER, but all of us can help. If you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. I'll see you on Tuesday with another update. Stay home, stay nice. Thank you, Emily. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. Fact-checking from Gabby Murskowski. The theme song is by Taki Yasuzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>